0: Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Joan Bakewell. His new book is called The Tick of Two Clocks, A Tale of Moving On, and it describes her, well it describes a house move but a very significant one. Joan, welcome. Can you tell me first of all about the the title, A Tick of Two Clocks, The Tick of Two Clocks?
1: It's very difficult, isn't it, finding a title for a book. I think it's a wonderful game. And this came from a Seamus Heaney poem in North, the volume North. And it's a poem written to his mother. It's called Sunlight. And it's about, it's a tribute to her. He wrote a lot of poems about his life with his family, his mother baking in the kitchen. And this is what she's doing. And she's making some, she's got flour on her hands. And I sympathize with a lot of the detail Seamus gets the detail exactly right, and I was rather fond of the idea of two rates of time, the tick of two clocks, one the old house when I was, you know, lively and rushing around, family, friends, lots going on, and the new clock, which is a much lower, lower key life, which is my, my retirement, or my not so much retirement because I'm working very hard, but my moving towards the end of my life.
0: Yes you're a very unretired person I mean this is a book about about the the autumnal years of life but I mean you know you're a working peer you're you'll remain still a writer still a broadcaster I mean do you think your your account of of old age and the movement into it is a is a representative one for people
1: no but it's one that i'm trying to work out to do well i'm always struggling to do well and it's a good idea to shape up to old age in a positive way so i'm not just letting my life flow on but getting a bit less i'm trying to make something constructive of it which includes not giving up work i mean i very much think you should stay active it doesn't have to be paid work but indeed what do you mean by work i mean you should be engaged with something you enjoy In my case, that involves reading and writing, reviewing. I'm part of a Sky Arts programme that's ongoing, which they make provision for my infirmities. I sit in the House of Lords where I shall be going today. I take part occasionally in debates, only when I think I know something that would be worth speaking about. So I just think it's enormously important to help, help you keep your brain alert, your personality still online and your physique. You know adequate because you have to get up and down and lead stairs and have meals with people coffee have a drink with people lead life as much as you always did and make the most of it because you've not got very much left and in the book it's it's sort of centered
0: on two houses isn't it well there's there's more houses then to enter it but you at one one point very early on you talk about this house in chalcot square in london In which you'd lived for many decades. And you sort of put one chapter in the voice of the house. I mean, how did you feel about that house? Do
1: you, you know, there's a sense of personality there, isn't there? Well, I felt, you know, I felt I came to love the house very much. And I felt I had a relationship with it, that it was part of me and had a place in the location where it's situated that's very historic. And I thought rather than just write another another chapter, here's the story of the house, I would give it a voice because I could get the house to celebrate itself and it would know more than I did. So I, I did the research and then I gave it the voice to the house. For example, I discovered that this area of L- North London near Primrose Hill was really dense with um, factories in the 19th century, but they were making piano, grand pianos. This is an area where they made grand pianos. And I thought that was such an interesting detail to uncover. I wanted everyone to share it. Yeah. And this you you were in this house. When did you when did you first move in? I mean, you were young. I think. Yeah, I was, I was I was pregnant child. with my second child, so I was in my late twenties, and it was the first home um we had ever owned. We It was grotesquely cheap by today's standards, but at the time we had to get a mortgage, a loan from parents, you know, all our savings and make a huge effort to raise, shall I tell you, 15,000 pounds. So you can see that over the years, living in Chalcott Square for 53 years, the property boom changed the value entirely. It's something of which I'm both guilty and angry because I do think the property boom is it, it privileges some people who don't deserve it i.e. me and it leaves other people unable to afford to to join the housing market in later decades i think there's something wrong with the housing market which is quite useful because i'm sitting on the select committee uh, for the built environment in the house of lords at the moment so i do feel that property and the availability of property for people, young people, and retired people, is a is a real issue for our society now. One of the points of contention,
0: I mean, in current politics, is this idea of, you know, should you, as say Boris made the case in in his conference speech, you know, the dream is to own your own home, yeah. and the ownership is something that has a kind of spiritual and psychic and rooting value, to which I'd say you you pay enormous and eloquent tribute in this book. But of course, there are a lot of people who can't and who can only rent and who need the property market to serve them. I mean, do you, I mean, I I don't want to divert into politics, but do you have a sort of sense of where you stand on the idea of, you know, we want to be a property owning democracy or?
1: Well, I think it becomes spontaneous. I mean, I grew up on Victorian novels in which um, the poor didn't have anything and lived in basements that were wet and, you know, made you ill. Mrs Gaskell, for example, and that the great uh, and the good um, won their way into stately homes where they were waited on by other people and lived in great comfort. And that was a scale of values which, with the help of romantic fiction in the cinema, I I thought was the way things were. When I got a little bit more political when I went to uh, Cambridge, I began to think that that shouldn't necessarily be the ideal way to organize society, but it it, did pretty well. But nonetheless, a lot of things needed adjusting. Now, in today's world, I've got uh, five grandchildren, and they are finding it very difficult. Now, I think there are several things that have grown up in society since my day when I bought this large house. One is the... The impulse people have if they've got a few savings to buy an extra flat to rent it themselves so people aspire to being a landlord even they've got though they've got a really modest amount of money. As a way of earning more money it's a kind of career move a financial move made often by people in their 20s who who've got a bit of spare cash so that snarls up the market and the other of course is the second home business which is running riot across cornwall where local people can't find homes for their you know their children can't find homes near near them so what do we think that homes are for and who are they for i just think these are quite interesting philosophical questions rather than political i mean they become political but it's interesting to think what is a home? I mean, it began as a cave, presumably, with a bit of fur across the front, flintstone wise, Um, but, but, but then it, it, it has gone on to become to represent status. And it has, I'm very interested in the tribal element of having a home and passing it on to the next generation, you know, how many sheep and goats you had established your status within the tribe and it was important that you had sheep and goats to pass on to your children and indeed in the bible people who don't pass on sheep and goats to the right people get into a lot of trouble (laughs) i think it is quite the whole idea of ownership of the human and by the human animal of things that reflect on their status and give them confidence and ability to raise more funds or enjoy themselves or not is quite an interesting one how did we get here i find it very interesting Yeah. Well, you did not
0: pass on your sheep and goats to your children in a direct way. You did. I mean, can you talk a bit about the decision to move and how it snuck up on you? Because one of the things I think that's quite moving in the book is that you didn't quite want to say to anyone you were thinking about it because it would make it real.
1: That's right, I was very sheepish about it, because of the love for the House, its history, the way I'd brought up my children there, the amount, number of people who had flowed through it, you know, the dinner table and the, the enjoyment I'd had there. I had been appointed by the Labour government as the voice of old people, so I did a lot of going round, seeing how old people lived, before I was seriously old myself. I was then invited by the BBC to do a programme called We Need to Talk About Death before I got within throwing distance of death myself. So both of these enterprises brought me in touch with housing, lifestyle and the way people live their lives. A lot of old people are quite sad and lonely and isolated. They need company, they need comfort and they need In a sense uh, which is what i try to convey in the book to seize hold of their old age and say i i want to control the last years of my life even though it involves leaving a big house and going into a small one I, i will retain control of that rather than become dependent on visiting carers or your children or neighbors and so on i i felt it gave people more resolution and in my case it was because i had an operation to replace my hip i've got a metal hip and during that time of recuperation i couldn't go up and down the stairs i was living on one level and i thought living on one level is extremely convenient and going up and down stairs because this was a, a house with four floors to it going up and down stairs as i recover with a metal hip is not the best way to go forward and it was that seeded the idea that perhaps we all ought ought to think about how we're going to live our final semi-infirm possibly infirm years.
0: You're very you know kind of straight and candid about saying that this home I'm moving into is going to be my last one. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people that's a scary thing to look in the face. Was that something you found scary?
1: Well you're not old enough Sam. (laughs) A lot of older people are thinking of where they're going to live their final years but they don't think of it as they don't see themselves you know white and wax and lying in bed and breathing their last but they feel this is my final move very often and it's, it's useful to make provision for the sort of convenience that you will need. I mean I don't have a great deal of space but I've had it adjusted so that it suits my age. For example, old people do not use baths very often. I don't mean because they're dirty. It's because they're fearful if they live on their own and get in a bath, they can't get out. So I don't have a bath in my home at all. I have a shower. So that's the kind of decision you can make about your own space. Well, funnily enough, your, my, my late
0: grandmother, Lived out her final years in Primrose Hill Studios, which is where you've moved to, and she did get stuck in the bath on more than one, oh, one occasion. And that, was, you know, she very traumatic it was too.
1: Yes, it is. It's, it's quite a risk if you live on your own. I mean, you can you can be in the cold water or overnight. Nonetheless, she, it is very fortunate if you're old to have a small garden that you can cope with. I didn't have a garden in the big house very much. I just had a courtyard. Now I've come here, I've got more time, but I, and I've had the garden designed so that it's got raised beds so that I can reach and do a little bit of digging and plow, weeding and so on. But a lot of it is paved so that I can sit out in the sunshine. And I've begun to enjoy the nature of a garden much more than I ever did, which is unusual. Most people are fed up with their gardens when they get old because they run out of control and can't do do them but i bought binoculars i've got a a feeder for the birds i've joined the rsbb i'm taking an interest in gardens birds plants fruit on.
0: now you're leaving the old house there's an enormous it's it's an enormous opportunity to take stock and you know i'm interested that some some of the descriptions you know you look back and you you describe yourself as having been a lonely child when you were growing up in Stockport. And you say at one point, the sad memories stick like glue and it's hard to see. I mean, do you, do you look back on, on, and feel melancholy? Or do you look back and think, actually, you know, everything's become sort of rosy and this was a life well
1: lived? Well, um, life in Stockport was very humdrum, very ordinary. I had a much younger sister. My main dilemma with my uh, growing up was that I was the first and adored child of parents who were still very much in love and it was a very happy home when I was a toddler full of laughter and so on. My mother then had medical problems and my daughter was quite a later child much later six years younger than me and her own view of the world began to become rather gloomy and we then entered a phase which was when I, as a teenager, was rollicking around trying to break you know out into the world when she and I were at great odds, so I like many women of my generation, had a conflict with my mother, which was very sad, really very sad now i felt it was filled me with rage at the time. but I look back at it now and see I can see that she in fact was one of those women who was very intelligent, had a job, but on marriage. It was the sign of a lower middle class husband that his wife should not work. That was considered appropriate, and so my father insisted that she stayed at home. Was proud of the fact he could earn enough, but she didn't have any use for her intelligence, her wit, her, her general outgoing personality. She was stuck at home, plumping the cushions and you know cleaning the carpet. It's
0: very interesting hearing you say that. As by it, I don't know where. Antonia it, yes. but she—I remember talking to her about her own childhood, and she said, "My poor little mother," she shouted and shouted. You know.
1: Well, M- Margaret Drabble told me the same story. <laughs>
0: Yes, they're not they're all no speakies themselves now, I think. But you know
1: Well the point is there was a generation of bright women who knew that the you know, the suffragettes had been and gone, the women had got their vote. they'd worked in uh, the factories of the First World War, and then suddenly all the men folk wanted them at home being good little wives. And we saw the sort of you know, the the cliche of the nineteen fifties housewife in the in the little pinny, frilly pinny cooking food and all the new gadgetry that wasn't suddenly available, and the women were not happy with that. A lot of them were very unhappy that that was the lot that suddenly seemed appropriate in society. Thankfully, we got rid of that. Yes, do you
0: think for your generation that seeing that was one of the things that sort of powered you into being the, you know, very busy professional person you are?
1: Yes, I did. I, I mean, I wanted to be outgoing and it was it was the move to Cambridge really that transformed my life because I was with people of my own generation, a huge swathe of them. I was with women and men who shared lots of ideas, who liked talking and sharing ideas, shaping the world. It came in the 50s at a time when uh, we had a sense of mission about making the world a better place. So there was lots of activity about literature and drama and politics. It was all very vigorous and creative. But for me, it was absolutely transforming. Yeah.
0: Now, you talk warmly as well about your two. You had two long marriages and the one of them, as you say, you know, the divorce wasn't exactly a very I mean, divorce never is. But but was pretty, you know, you were upset about the division of spoils. And there was it got a bit bitter, but You talk in your preface, you say, you know, I had these two long marriages, which were for the most part, very, very happy. Do you, I mean, does does sort of taking a long view?
1: I remember talking to one of them, I can't remember who it must have been, the journalist who married to Hemingway and saying, of course you um, you had a failed marriage. And I remember her saying, stop, stop. You mustn't attribute to me that kind of remark. She said, you can be happy in a marriage for a long time And then things go wrong, and I suddenly, of course, in my own life, saw that that was so, because I was married for 17 years, in one marriage, 25 in the second, and I certainly wouldn't have hung around um, if I'd been living in misery all that time. Indeed, I would scarcely have survived. So there were many, many years of very happy marriage and, and two children, and they grew up, and family life was normal and so on. But they did both go off the rails. Yeah.
0: And I, I, do you find yourself content in your own skin as a, as a single person now? I mean, I'm assuming you're single. I may yes. be wrong. but
1: Yes, I do. I think of myself as an, one of the army of single people who are either widowed or divorced, who, have, who actually probably from choice live on their own, but, but are in touch with a whole network of similar uh, positioned people. And there are a great many of us. And I have a great clan of what I call my wise women. Whom, if i have a if i have an issue i get on the it happened during lockdown if i was getting a bit low or wondered how to deal with it i emailed the wise women all lot a whole lot of them and they came back with ideas and suggestions and and saved me <laughs> now when you're moving out of this big house there's
0: wonderful attention to what you have to get rid of and what you have to take and this extraordinary kind of collection of, they weren't your wise women, though some of them may have been, but a sort of crew, a cast of people who were who involved in that process, aren't they?
1: Well, it, it's been very interesting. I was talking about sitting on this committee for the built environment, and I was reading a report that had been done recently about housing. And one of the reasons that people don't downsize from their very big but now empty houses from which the children have gone and the gardens overrun and they can't cope. The reason they don't usually downsize is because they have so much stuff they could not go to a smaller home. And I thought, but you only have to get rid of stuff. It's not really it's not really a barrier. Why would people want to keep? all the stuff. Now I'm looking with great affection at the books behind you, because I had to get a rid of a lot of books. And that was the books that was the, it was the most poignant moment, sitting there, do I want to keep this one? Yes or no? Yes. And I started to ask friends, in fact, I think I tell the story of going to a dinner party full of literary folk and saying, I have a question for you all, this is at the dinner table. Um, I've got to get rid of my books and I need some advice. Well, one literary editor said, throw them all away because if you need anything, you can get it in 24 hours on Amazon. I thought that was rather severe. And then I said, and then I set a quiz for generally, I said paperbacks, Rex Warner, do I keep it or does it go? Most of them said, who's Rex Warner? And I thought in that case, I should keep it because nobody knows about him except me. And then I said, what about, Faulkner William Faulkner and most of them said oh no let get get rid of his and then I said well what about keeping one or two and then we had a discussion about which William Faulkner I should keep as I lay dying won the competition that but you see, nice, I mean book people in a sense because they're literary editors like yourself they know that book is books are passing through their rooms all the time and they're getting rid of them on the other hand I remember having a friend who was downsizing and he was making gifts of his books to friends and he gave me something I would never have had and I rejoice in having to the diaries of Van Gogh three volume diaries of van gogh with his drawings in the book wonderful volumes really readable and transform my view of van gogh now that's a lovely thing to do when you downsize to make gifts to all your friends of things you don't have to pay for because you already own and they will cherish as they remember you so it doesn't have to be terrible but it does have to be confronted yes and some of
0: those books i mean you've got you do do outline the sort of absolute central, like, most important bookshelf. What's on that shelf?
1: Well, the things I've obviously got to have the stuff that I depend on from my childhood. I mean, all the Brontes, I've got Proust, I've got Jane Austen, I've got Dickens, Okay, Those are the complete sets and they're not going. Uh, They're rather high up on the shelves, so I don't reach them very often. It's just that I know that I need them there. I need to be able to touch them. I found during lockdown, that I depended on poetry quite a lot and bought quite a lot of poetry because I found it very comforting while I was in isolation. So um, the poetry shelves rather matter more than I thought they would. And I've always been a great museum goer, art gallery goer. So the art books have stayed, the art books with the colored catalogues of, um, you know, Birmingham City Gallery, Manchester City Gallery, the Tate. National Gallery and so on all the big books about big painters they're they're still there
0: yeah I think that with poetry are you buying new poetry or sort of discovering poets you hadn't known I mean I I, I was startled talking to Clive James a year or so before he died he was just really getting into Robert Browning who miraculously, he'd gone through his life without having read Browning.
1: Oh, what a treat for him to find him. Yes, I've always been rather keen on Robert Browning. In fact, I once went to a wreath-laying ceremony in the Westminster Abbey for Robert Browning. I'm buying some poets I hadn't heard of before. My friend, um, Frank Skinner, the stand-up comic, you know, has an iPod about poetry. He's very, very keen on poetry and, and very informed about it. And he suggested a number of Americans I'd never heard of, whom I've, I can't bring their names to mind now, but they're sitting on the table down there. So I take suggestions from him of things I ought to I ought to consider. Of course, and I know certain poets. I mean, I knew Carol Ann Duff and I knew Jackie Kay and Liz Lockhead, and the people. so the poets that I know I like, I collect them. Sylvia Plath, I remember who I knew when she was in lived around the corner indeed from here.
0: So you knew her in, in, when she was alive, little did you?
1: Yes, yes I did because Ted Hughes, to whom she was then married, was interested in getting radio commissions to do plays for radio and my husband was a radio producer so they became friends and so i met her socially just a couple of occasions and i knew the baby and i saw her when she was pushing the pram on primrose hill and she was um i didn't know her poetry then she was rather reticent i mean i wasn't a close friend at all and she certainly didn't confide in me so i was only aware that she was married to ted hughes the poet and that tells a story doesn't it <laughs> But when she pu- published Ariel, I knew Alvarez, Al Alvarez, and uh, his influence on her. She was, she was a very high, highly sensitive individual. And I've always thought that Ariel was a sensational book. Wonderful. Absolutely remarkable. You talk in the process of moving,
0: which, which sort of made me laugh. You said, you know, all through your life, you've managed to avoid being a manager. You know, you've been a sort of freelance. You've been a producer, but you have you presenter, writer, but and there's always this sort of oh god, now I've got to be a manager.
1: Who who wants to be a manager? Isn't it an amazing role that people um, have an ambition? I'd like to be a manager. No, no, I don't want to do, I don't want to be having to tell other people what to do. I don't want to have to point out their failings. I don't want to have to restructure organisations, which is what managers mostly seem to do. It's all very dry stuff. And I like juice. I like sort of life force in things, whereas managing is pretty, it's pretty dusty, isn't it?
0: But moving house and getting an architects in does require you to be a manager. Did it, did it give you more appreciation for the...
1: Um, managing the move was very much one-to-one. I mean, I had two architects, a husband and wife together, and we became good friends. So I beca- it became a matter of collaboration rather than me. I would tell them what I wanted, but then it was for them to come to me and tell me how much I could have or not, and that was true for the people who did the garden too, and the people who organized my move and where my furniture should go, so each of these were particular personal relationships I, even then I got it wrong, as I tell in the story in the book, because i I'm really I wasn't flexible, managers obviously need to be flexible, and I rather like to say, and I'd like that done because I'm moving in on such a day, and thereby lies the tale. I got it wrong,
0: yes, and you ended up. Living in a hotel for a very long time.
1: I did. I lived for about six weeks. I lived on people's sofas, in their spare rooms. I lived for a good while at the Premier Inn, and then I lived at the Marriott. I was moving from hotel to hotel, making friends. That was very nice, having people round for a late night, night drink at the Marriott was something I never encumbered before. People were very generous and helpful, but I was, I was, a vagabond. I felt I was rootless. It was very odd. I lived out of a suitcase, something like. Seven weeks. Uh, but was it sort of odd having the, the sort of two poles of your life because all
0: this was going on while you were going to the Lords, and you know, fighting what some will think is a good fight and some will think was a wicked plot over Brexit in twenty seventeen. Well,
1: the House was very exercised, and the House of Lords, as you will know, has excellent debates because the people in the house of lords are not vying for celebrity or ambition or whatever because there is mostly behind them or at their peak um and uh so their debates are very civilized and i found it very interesting and i was of course as i say in the book i was a remainer when it came to europe and i still feel the bonds with europe very strongly in my life but it was very interesting to be at the house and, and be behaving as a serene person going about their life, and then to come back to the chaos of trying to rid myself of all my uh, goods, my stuff, and uh, plan for a new home. So it was really a dizzy time. I'm glad I did it before I was any older, because, you know, it would have been chaos.
0: Do you see yourself ever retiring? I mean, actually retiring and stopping?
1: What would it be that I was stopping I would I probably would stagger on to the House of Lords because the House of Lords is generous to older people and listens to them and there are many people older than myself and much wiser who are worth listening to I don't there will be a limit how much broadcasting I can do David Attenborough who was used to be my boss at BBC two always asks me are you still are you still working keep keep it up keep it up because i think he still likes to work it's the engagement with ideas that matters the engagement with ideas and with people and of course television is full is run by much much younger people which is very good too because that keeps you familiar not only with the way thinking is going but the changing vocabulary and changing way that people their attitude to the culture a lot of which I'm out of touch with I have to say but nonetheless I run along beside them trying to keep up so what I do isn't anything arduous I would wish to give up and if it were then I would say no I'm I think perhaps I won't be doing that much longer Mm -hmm. I mean what else would you do what do people do in their old age a lot of them do do continue to work but it's, it's called volunteering I mean all those people who and man the desks in hospitals, and all those people who um, give guided tours in galleries and things—they're they, ostensibly retired, but they're doing part-time jobs or volunteering because you have to have something to do with life. You otherwise, you—you just—you probably vegetate and probably die younger. Yeah. Did you, did, I mean,
0: there's there's an ongoing kind of, you know, public row about the, the idea that women when they're past a certain age get sort of hoofed off the television and find it much harder to get radio work and i mean you don't seem to have have suffered that do you feel like you got sidelined as you grew older and
1: well i mean i've been bounced around on and off by various executives at the bbc you know sacking me re-employing me commissioning me on a different series of programs i don't regard myself as having a real roots anywhere but I'm very fortunate in the, my current commitment, which is because of someone who runs a company, a small company that is contracted by Sky Arts to do Portrait Artist of the Year, a company called Storyboard, the, the executives there both decided to, to take a chance on me, my doing it. And I've enjoyed doing it and I continue to do it and I wait for them to say, mm, perhaps time is for a change, Joan," but they haven't said so yet.
0: Good. Well, well, may they do so no time soon. Joan Bakewell's new book is The Tick of Two Clocks, A Tale of Moving On. Joan, thanks very much indeed for your time.
1: Thanks very much, Sal. Thank you very
0: much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, um, don't feel you have to review it. Um, And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk